Good evening, darklings, and welcome to Once Upon a Terror. I'm your host, Adelina Hill, and this is the third episode of Once Upon a Terror. Thank you for following the show's Instagram. It brings me great joy to see the audience engaging with the podcast. I have three stories for you tonight, one you may know very well, one that I wrote, and one submitted by a Reddit user. I'm quite eager to narrate these stories, so let's start the show. Once upon a time. Once Upon a Terror presents My Guardian Angel is a Demon by Reddit user Marcus Dassum. Patient Journal Log B.34 December 16th, 2017 Dr. Velmer's Office for State Psychological Assessment Testimony of Patient Noel Jones July 5th, 2015 the worst day of my life. I don't know, nor could I fathom a reason why, but my girlfriend of two years decided to break up with me during my best friend's 4th of July party. It was sudden, and it was raw. I broke down completely that day. Normally, I might have felt embarrassed showing emotion in public, especially around my friends, given the fact that I was usually a pillar of stoicism and stability. But I couldn't hold up a facade anymore. Not for that. The tears ran freely down my face as she spat out her breakup mantra in the corner of the party room, as strangers and friends looked at us with amusement at my pain. I don't remember much of it. The blaring of the 1970s disco music combined with the drinks drowned out a lot of what she said, but I got the gist. Apparently we weren't compatible anymore, or something. It was utter bullshit, and we both knew it. Not like it mattered. She was the love of my life. I even quit my fucking job for her, to spend more time with her when she said our relationship was on the edge, when she said I wasn't expressing myself enough, or some shit. But I did it for her. For us. I swear on my life I did everything I could. Anything and everything she ever wanted. She made enough money off her dad's back for the both of us to live comfortably, so it seemed reasonable decision at the time for me to quit saving to save our relationship. In retrospect, it was a foolish decision, but I was just 20, and I never expected her to pull the rug out from under me like that. We shared friends. I knew after the breakup, most, if not all of them, would side with her. I truly had nothing. I saw several of them give me side eyes after her talk with me, like I was already a bad, distant memory to them. I felt so lost, so hopeless. It seemed silly looking back. But when your whole life flips on its head like that, it's like drowning without a lifesaver. After a few more numbing drinks and a good cry or two in the bathroom of the party, I walked back to our apartment to collect my stuff. 
Sitting there, packing up all my belongings in her place was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I felt so, so numb with sadness, anger, and whatever else was stabbing me in the heart. It's hard to express to you, Doc. I just felt so numb that I wasn't even sure if those emotions were real or imaginary. But they felt real either way. Damn sure they felt real. I remember yanking my clothes out of my dresser, like a robot mindlessly doing its monotonous, meaningless job, when I noticed a long green box in the corner of the closet that was completely covered with dust. You have to understand, I didn't know what it was until I opened it, but just that minuscule spike of curiosity I got from the side of it drove me out of my grief for just a moment, just long enough to pick it up. It was heavy, really heavy. I knew it had to have been something I forgot through the years. It definitely wasn't new. I watched the dust fill the room with a cloud of gray as I lightly blew on the top of the box. Afterwards, I opened the lid. I'm telling you the full truth, Doc. A black hunting rifle stared back at me, a shimmering gleam of black steel. I remembered what it was. It had been a gift from my late uncle for my 18th birthday. He had always wanted me to get into hunting, but I was never into killing animals for sport. But it really was a beautiful weapon. It made me almost rethink my choice of declining him all those years. I managed to pick it out of its case with some difficulty, feeling it all over. The ridges, the barrel stock finely crafted would describe it the coolness of the steel felt good as i ran it through my fingers i started estimating its weight the absolute killing capacity of it it felt powerful it made me feel powerful doc that's when i made the decision the decision that everyone tells you not to take the decision that everyone tells you is never the answer the decision that mothers weep over every day of every year but I made it, not because I really wanted to, but because I didn't feel like there was any other way out. I was numb to the core of my being, sad beyond sickness, and I just wanted it to be over, over for good. Slowly I loaded the gun, one bullet after the other, feeling the cold weight of each one in my hands. It really was hard, man, but I still did it. I don't know why. Then I pointed it towards my right eye. I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, Doc, but you know how they say your life flashes before your eyes right before you die? Well, I can't exactly say that's true, but something happened in my brain that made me think a second longer than I should have. A second longer than what my trigger finger should have allowed. I thought about my mom back in Michigan, asking me if I would ever come back from college. I remembered the promise I gave her. Of course I told her. I'll make sure to call every week, too. I remembered the beer I had with my dad as we sat down on the old fishing dock, watching the setting sun the day before I left. You'll be watching this with me again sometime, right? The usual gruffness in his voice was replaced with one of the slight melancholy, and I could have sworn I saw some mist in his eyes. Wouldn't miss it for the world, I replied back, taking another swig of beer. I remembered my friends back home, too. I thought about my friend Andrew and his stupid fucking vending machine he bought on Craigslist that didn't work. He spent three grand on it, and it basically went in debt for a piece of scrap metal. The look on his face when he realized that his investment was worthless was so funny. I think I broke a rib cage laughing at it. He hated me for that, but I didn't care. We were so close, and we spent the whole summer finding ways to use it. And honestly, that three grand was well spent. Those were good times, Doc. 
all of those good thoughts and memories, plus a million more that swarm in my clouded mind, gave me that split second indecision. Some of the things I remembered made the situation I was in feel slightly less damp, slightly more bearable. But my finger was on the trigger, see? And my mind was already set. It was like my head had given commands for it to push down, despite my pleading effort for it to stop. I watched helplessly as it went down further and further and farther until... Bang. And let me tell you, it was so fucking loud. I still hear it in my ears sometimes. But before anything else happened, I almost felt a push. It was sudden, and it happened almost simultaneously with the shot. It was so quick I barely noticed it, but it happened. I know that as a fact. But the tremor, the power of the gun was something I had never felt before. My ears rung so loudly it felt like my head was going to split open. My eyes stung with tears from the smoke and my leg was on fire from the unexpected recoil. But I was alive. Somehow. With some hesitation, I felt around. First, I felt my face. Intact. Then I felt around my body as I attempted to clear my eyes from the smoke. Also intact. No blood. I wasn't dead. The smoke dissipated after a few seconds and I was able to look around the scene. The gun had fallen to the floor with no sign of where the bullet went. I swear I didn't see it happen, Doc. I didn't notice at first. But I did look up at the ceiling eventually at the trajectory of where the gun was pointed. That's when I saw where the bullet went. Above me, a wedding-sized ring hole ran through the plastered ceiling of the apartment, a ceiling that led to the bedroom floor of the room directly above me. Screaming began. Horrible, horrible screaming. I remember fear racking my body. My fingers trembled so badly I could hardly dial 911, but I did. What happened next was a blur, sirens, screaming, detainment, a visit from my livid ex-girlfriend. It was a living nightmare. I'm sure you understand, Doc. You probably go through a million cases like this a day. You get it. But it wasn't until after the third questioning when I was able to piece the story together on my own. They told me I flinched hard enough while pulling the trigger that the bullet managed to barely miss my head. Then I guessed it flew straight through the ceiling and into the back of my upstairs 40-year-old neighbor, Rebecca. They told me she died minutes after impact. I was a murderer, Doc. A fucking killer. I couldn't process what was happening. But deep down in the back of my head during the endless questionings and talks with my attorney, I was strangely relieved, though. Weirdly relieved. I was almost glad it was her instead of me, you see. And I know that's fucked up. You don't have to tell me twice. Also, I felt like something had saved me, and I can't shake that feeling. Something had pushed me out of death's way, and it sure as hell wasn't me. It's kind of funny how you can go from wanting to die more than anything to be glad you're alive after a botched suicide. Life is a big, long, cruel joke, right? Anyway, initially I was charged with third-degree murder, but the charges were eventually dropped after the family urged the state not to pursue the case. The Robinsons were devout Catholics and believed in my redemption and reconciliation with God or whatever. They reminded me that my guardian angel was watching me over that day, so I must be watching over it too. I was never a religious guy, so it flew over my head. But I had been thinking about those words recently. They also said something about the devil finally getting to Rebecca, which did sting me a little, I admit. I was grateful that they forgave me and pleaded on my behalf, but I still never felt the remorse I should have for them or Rebecca. It was like I really didn't care that much, and that scares me. 
It was clear to the prosecutors that I had no motive or malice when I shot that gun. Everything stacked up in my favor legally, but still, I just feel... You understand, right? Well, anyway, despite this, I was sent to rehabilitation, to you, Doc, and my rights to own a gun were revoked for the next 15 years, or until I could get a proper psych test for my mental well-being. But that was to be expected. I didn't really care. I was just glad to be alive. Still am, actually. But one thing I remember vividly out of the whole blur of the situation was the day I was released. I was walking out of the detention center to start rebuilding my fractured life, papers in one hand and a lukewarm coffee in the other, when suddenly I felt a warm breeze blowing on my shoulder. Then I felt a light push. It was strong enough to knock me off my feet right before I got past the sidewalk to the road. I watched, flat on my ass, as a truck ran the red light through the crosswalk I was about to enter, blasting down the road mere inches away from my face. My adrenaline levels were a wreck after that, but I was alive. I heard on the news later that day that the very same truck got into a crash. I heard there were no survivors. And Doc? I just couldn't help but smile. Maybe I did have a guardian angel on my side after all. End log. I didn't tell you what the story was at the very beginning of the episode, but you will recognize the story. Our next story is called The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad, hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is my point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should see, you have, sh you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed so that no light shone out and then i thrust in my head oh you would have laughed to see how cunningly i thrust it in i moved it slowly very very slowly so that i might not disturb the old man's sleep it took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far i could see him as he lay upon his bed ha would a madman have been so wise as this and then when my head was well in the room i undid the lantern cautiously Oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thread ray fell upon the vulture's eye. 
and this I did for several long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed to suspect that every night, just twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand move more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that there was opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were closed fastened through the fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing on it steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, "'Who's there?' I kept quiet still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I had done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I hear a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of relief. Oh, no, it was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it had welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I know it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him. Although I chuckled at heart, I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, It is merely a cricket which had been made a single chirp. Yes, he has been trying to comfort himself with these superstitions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim and it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard to feel, the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray like the thread of a spider shot out from the crevice and fell upon the vulture's eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect blue distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones, but I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And now... Have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of senses? 
Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates a soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker, and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of the old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only, and in an instant I dragged him to the floor and pulled him heavy bed over him. Then I smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was a stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took from the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the floor of the chamber and disposed them all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. Ha! Ha! When I made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock. Still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart. For what now I've to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed, in the enthusiasm of my confidence. I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest for their fatigues. While I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease, they said, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. 
my head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently, and with a heightened voice, yes, the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles and in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited by fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated upon the boards, but the noise arose all over, over, continuously increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men shouted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew, they were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think, but anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now again, hark louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked, disassemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Hear, hear it, this beating of his hideous heart. We're wedding... Blech. We're wedding rings. Hundreds of them, at least. From men and women, some with diamonds and other gold bands. Mom stayed silent, a hand over her mouth. Do you know anything about this? She asked. Josh and I were closest brothers, despite our age gap. I shook my head. No, I'm just as lost as you are. I have no idea where he got these. He stole them is what he did. There are so many, he could have been doing this for years. Instead of confronting Josh on her own, she took pictures of the box with rings and showed them to Josh's therapist, taking a calmer approach to Josh's stealing habit. Why were you going through my stuff? Josh snapped when she showed him the photo. I was just collecting laundry and found the box. Where did you get these rings? Are you stealing them from people? Josh did not respond and did not talk for the rest of the session. Mom kept asking him questions about the rings, getting no response. He stormed up to his room when we got home. Could you try and talk to him? Maybe he'll open up to you. Sure, I said, but I didn't think he'd tell me anything, probably thinking I'd get straight to Mom with whatever answers he gave me. I knocked on his door before entering. Josh was sitting at his desk doing homework. I'm not telling you anything either, he grumbled, not looking up at me. I won't tell Mom under one condition. He paused, waiting to hear what I had to say. I won't tell her, as long as you promise to stop stealing wedding rings. Deal? I held out my hand. He hesitated, but took it. I sighed and asked, Where are you getting these rings? Josh was silent, thinking of his answer. What he said was the last thing I was thinking of. No, it hadn't even crossed my mind as a possibility. It's not stealing if the owner is dead. Josh said flatly, and that's all he said, and then it hit me. We lived up the road from a funeral home. It was possible that's where he was getting them from. He could be taking them off the corpses in the morgue. 
It made sense. Noises at night of him shuffling around his room at 3 a.m., and so I asked, Did you take these rings from the bodies in the morgue? Josh sat in silence and then shook his head. Yes. I inhaled a shaky breath. Take the box, return it to the funeral home. I won't tell Mom and we'll get the box from her room. Okay, was all he said. I told Mom the promise I made to Josh, and she said it was also better off not knowing where or how he obtained the rings. She was frustrated, but let it slide. A couple weeks passed, and Josh stopped stealing wedding rings from the morgue. I was proud of the trust I had built with him and that he kept his promise to stop stealing rings. Everything was back to normal. If you think he waited before starting to steal more rings, you'd be incorrect. He did stop stealing rings. Emphasis on the word rings. Josh came home from school one day, smelling of sweat and dirt. My college was only an hour away, so I'd stay at home some weekends. But this time, Mom had asked me to come to talk to Josh about a new bad habit he had picked up. At least that's what we assumed it was. When I got home, Josh was ecstatic to see me. He wanted to show me something in the backyard. Don't get mad, was the first thing he said before opening the garden shed. Are you stealing again, Josh? I asked, annoyed. It's not stealing, especially this isn't. It's collecting. You can collect things without stealing them from other people. God, why couldn't he be, like, why couldn't it be baseball cards or rocks or girls' panties, for God's sake? Josh pulled a box out of the corner, a cooler. I found this in the trash behind the morgue. He opened the cooler to a bloody box of fingers. I stepped back, gagging from the smell hitting my face. Fingers. He stole fingers. These don't go in the trash, Josh. They put these in special bags and shipped them off. Where did... What did you do? Tell me. Tell me the truth this time. I cut them off the corpses. Why? To collect the rings. He paused. I will know if you tell Mom. Did I say I was going to tell her? No. Granted, I brought you here to show you this. Why are you doing this? What makes you want to take dead people's possessions and... Their fingers. He was silent at this question. Don't tell Mom. Then he put the box away and left the shed. It was at 3 a.m. that night when I was awoken by my mother screaming. I sat up startled, jumped out of bed, and ran down the hall to her room. The light was off and I opened the door. I switched the light on and found Mom sitting up in bed with blots of blood on her face. On her sheets were Josh's collection of fingers, but it had multiplied. They looked fresh, new, as if cut off from people still alive. She was still screaming. I, I, I was, I was, I was sleeping and then felt this soft thudding on my face and there were these. She trailed off sobbing. I walked over to her bed, helping her away from the mess. She continued talking. Someone was, someone was dropping them on my face. Her voice cracked and I turned on the hallway light. Mom was hiccuping her sobs and I brought her downstairs to the kitchen. Wait here, I'll be right back. I then left and stormed up to Josh's room. Josh, you better have an explanation for this. Mom is traumatized and... I opened his door, but Josh wasn't there. A nasty odor hit my face on the floor. There they were. More fingers, but no Josh. Just fingers. Adult, child, young and old. Just fingers. Fingers and hearts and guardian angels. None of it was real, I promise. It was all fiction, at least I hope it was. 
Get some sleep now, darklings, and I will see you next week on Once Upon a Terror. Good night.